You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the founder of the Recode podcast host union. The only problem is that I'm the only member because Peter Kafka won't join. But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair, we're thrilled to have Boots Riley, the writer and director of Sorry to Bother You. It's a social satire about capitalism, race, technology, and more business. He's also the lead vocalist of the hip-hop band The Coup. Boots, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. And it really is a red chair. I it is. To check. I told you. you I'm going to take it. No one has to know, though, and you could just call it a red chair. Yes, we could, but it is, in fact, one. And yeah. we also have joining me in the interview, Recode reporter Shireen Ghaffari. Hey, Shireen. Hey. How you doing? Good. So, Shireen is the one that got me to have you here. I'm very excited. All right. Um, well, uh, so, let's start off talking job. about I don't know if that's objective your, to say. your success, which is a long time in coming. You've okay. been around a long time. Yeah. And this is, yeah, no, me too. Let's talk a little bit about what you yourself and what you've been doing, how you got here. I don't mean to say you're old. It's just that you're yeah. like, how did you get to this? Well, um, my parents were attracted to each other. Mm-hmm, got that part. And uh, something happened Something there. happened and was created but, you. Yeah. I started out, uh, my grandmother uh, on my mother's side ran Oakland Ensemble Theater. I got in involved in theater kind of maybe through that but then at the same time in my teenage years I I joined uh, a radical organization that was helping to support farm workers who were creating a farm workers union in the Central Valley and McFarland and and, uh, Delano that area and there was also in that the legend of Teatro Campesino which had been around in the 60s and Mm -hmm. helped to organize. And so I had this idea of theater and actually kind of wrote my first raps while writing the high school play. Realized that theater, you know, or I don't know if I realized it, but I decided that theater was too small for mm-hmm. what I wanted to, for the effect that I wanted right. to have. Right. And I went to film school at San Francisco State. At the same time, I was doing music. Mm-hmm. And I, it happened to be like many companies are are mechanical. So the music industry is no different. If someone has a hit with a green jacket, mm-hmm. they're going to look for people with green jackets. Right, a hundred percent. You right. know, yeah. And, Let's do it again and again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so because a couple people had hits from Oakland, mm-hmm. MC Hammer, Digital Underground. Right. Uh, at the time, you know, there there were a few MC Hammer, Digital Underground, Too Short. So uh, record labels were like. We 
every record label had to have a group from Oakland. Mm -hmm. And we just happened to be there and our records were selling locally. I had taken the information that I knew about campaigns from doing grassroots campaigns with radical organizations and applied that to my music. So our posters were everywhere in the Mm -hmm. Bay Area, even if you weren't ever going to buy any music, you were like, what? the hell is this yeah, poster doing? Yeah. 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 And um, so we got signed to uh, Wild Pitch EMI Records and I focused on that for 20 something years. Mm-hmm. And But at the same time, our music was always known for being, they always called it cinematic, which I don't know what, what that, that means. means. Yeah, exactly. It meant that I described what things looked like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and for some of my songs, they were like eight minute long story songs right. that the label was re- very frustrated with because mm-hmm. how do you put that on the radio? Right. Um, so, for instance, uh, we have a song called Fat Cats and Bigger Fish, uh, which is a song about a pickpocket who is conning and stuff and ends up switching clothes with his with his cousin who's a, w- a waiter at a high society party and mm-hmm. he's, and they all they think they look alike so they switch clothes and he goes in there and he's pickpocketing and while he's pickpocketing he overhears the the mayor mm-hmm. of Oakland talking to uh, Coca-Cola, the person that owns Coca-Cola bottling, about a plan for Mm -hmm. gentrification. At the time, of course, when this came out in 1994, I was said to be like a conspiracy kook to think that someone would be trying to gentrify uh, the Bay Area, much less Oakland. Anyway, that song on the album goes into another song called Freestyling at the Fortune 500 Club. So it goes from that song to... That which is freestyling at the Fortune 500 Club is one of the Rockefellers, one of the Gettys and Trump figuring out how to rap Mm -hmm. at a party. And uh, then that gets broken up uh, by a group of people who come in, mess up the party. And that's called taking these. So anyway, that's just stories and everything. It's also the same themes. They're also the similar themes. Yeah. Well, I mean. Much I of, don't mind. Yeah, much of our life is about looking at things from a certain perspective, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when did you think, okay, I want to make a movie now? Uh, when I was 17 mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, yeah, I think. Uh, but when did I say, okay, I'm, yeah, this is, I'm really going to do it. I think, um, so I had another uh, group called Street Sweeper Social Club. That's me and Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. And um, that setup was Tom producing the music and me making the lyrics. And I kind of, for everything I talk about, people working together and Mm -hmm. forming collectives and being, you know, uh, artists are, and I'm talking about myself, are, you know, very ego-driven. And so that collaboration left me wanting something else Mm -hmm. because we were better, me and him were better friends um, when we weren't trying to work together to create some music. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do something that, you know, it was just all from my brain and, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I got to say the way things were. The way you wanted to do it. Yeah. So, and and I also wanted to be excited about it because I think after doing that, I felt 
not as excited about mm-hmm. music. So this was, you know, and I started writing. I, I downloaded Final Draft and started typing just a few sentences one time in a hotel room. And then it formats it for you in front mm-hmm. of your eyes. And so within a few minutes, I was like, oh, shit, I'm mm-hmm. writing a script. <laughs> And so, there, you know, at that point, uh, I knew. Software solves everything. <laughs> yeah. At that point, I knew that, you know, I had, had enough fans from music that even if I didn't get the film produced, I could get people to read the script. Mm-hmm. So I had an audience no matter what. Right. Like I could, not necessarily business folks, uh, f- folks in the music, in the film business to read the script, but I could put it out and have you know, all the, all the respond or, fans read right, the script. And, right. and for me, and I noticed as I was writing the script and I'd get someone to read it, it felt to me like they were watching my movie. Because mm-hmm. I also, like the, the scene descriptions and everything that I put in there, I tried to make it so that it was a good read, mm-hmm. so that it, it felt fun, mm-hmm. not just a manual to create a film. Right. It was... A piece in and, and of itself. And the, the concept from it was something you'd already been talking about. These these themes. I mean, people t- are, all mm. all the reviews I read sort of focus on the same themes about capitalism. About yeah, uh, much like your podcast mm-hmm. is always about tech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Fair point. Fair <laughs> point. Know? Fair point. That's a fair point. But, <laughs> what, but what were you what, talk about the movie itself? Where did the idea for this company come from? That, that you would create this company, where your main character works as a telemarketer. Uh, well, so. I'm just curious why you use that. So you're talking about worry-free. Yeah, yeah worry-free. Um, so worry-free, I guess it's just... Uh, I love it. Uh, you, you heighten... I'm surprised a tech company hasn't made something <laughs> that. Yeah, you, it's... With all of these things, I think with comedy, with drama, with horror, with uh, and with just plain political analysis, all you're doing when you're doing these things is heightening contradiction, mm-hmm. right? You yeah. are highlighting the contradiction and, you know, pushing it forward so much so that, like, if if I were to ask you, what's the problem with the tech industry today? Mm-hmm. And you were to sum it up in a paragraph long thing, mm-hmm. you'd be leaving out so many details that what you're really doing is... I just say Facebook, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, what you're really doing is exaggerating mm-hmm. in, for the purpose right. of clarity. Right. And that's what irony is built on. That's what all of these things are, are built on. So with this company and, and w- with what my point is, I'm exaggerating the point that I'm making with this company. You know, people don't get a wage, mm-hmm. you know, and everything is for the profit of the folks that own the company. And you know, it's just an exaggerated, slightly only, mm-hmm. <laughs> exaggerated slightly. version of what's happening. And so that's where that comes from is like how, what do I, 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 I always in my music, because although it has the same themes like in my music, I have, mm-hmm. for instance, a song about wanting to lay in bed with your significant other all day. Mm-hmm. And my point in that is I'm, I have to ask myself, why why is that? What is it about? Mm-hmm. Is it just about sex? Or is it about controlling your time? Mm-hmm. Is it about who controls your time? Right. 
and what kind of say you have and you know and what do we have left on this earth what do p- humans have except time right and whether they get to decide how to use it or not i mean matter of fact prison is all about time right all of these things are about time so you know i wouldn't say that my stuff is has the same theme i think the theme is life but i have an outlook on life that tries to connect the dots to all of these things so i'm not whereas a regular love song would be just like oh baby i wish we could spend the day in mm-hmm. bed together mm-hmm. i'm trying to connect it to figure to, out why to to all these things and it all comes down to how we survive mm-hmm. like everything in life everything in history is about how we survive our culture and everything is grown out of that I've said this before. If you want to know why certain villages had fishing songs, it's probably because they were a fishing <laughs> yeah, village. Yeah. Yeah. And you can analyze, you know, there are certain people that will be cultural critics that will talk about the intonations of the fishing songs and why they did these sort of things. But they're purposely trained to not look at the fact of why that's a fishing village in the first place. Right, absolutely. But what's interesting, I was when I was watching a movie, I was thinking, oddly enough, of, of a movie that I recently watched again, Network, which suggested a lot of ways media was going to go in the future. At the time it was put out, everyone said, oh, it'll never get like this. Hmm. Um, and if you go back and look at Network, everything created in that movie exists in modern media yeah. in a, lots of ways, except for the maybe the... Maybe the execution on screen, which I think I'm just waiting for, essentially. Um, and one of the things when I was watching this movie was, yeah, I could see someone creating a company like that and people willing to be part of it, which yeah. was, although it's a satire, obviously. And then people will just make snarky jokes about it. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, if they're not organized, that's all we'll get. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Know? Which I thought was interesting. And I thought that this is sort of, it reminded me, you know, even though you're not a techie, it reminded me of the kind of things techies think of and they make sense to them at the time. And Well, and that's why it's called Worry Free mm-hmm. is... Um, I don't think it's just techies. I mean, explain the, Worry Free for people who haven't seen the movie. It's so Worry Free is a company um, that advertises itself to uh, has two modes of advertising: one that the general public sees, and one that these telemarketers do. And the one that the general public sees is a company that basically takes care of your needs. That you move into their live work spaces. And, which are um, prisons, essentially. Yeah, which are aesthetically luxurious mm-hmm. looking, you know, uses some of the, the, hits some of the notes of what is supposed to be luxurious. It has, they have uh, chandeliers and I think maybe velvet, um, that was the intention. And yeah, you live in there, live workspaces, you work all day and you're, you don't have to worry about being unemployed mm-hmm. or housing or food. Right. And so they they represent themselves as just handling those problems, which in this world, there are people that see it as slavery and mm-hmm. are trying to expose that. Worry-free then, of course, um, markets itself to uh, companies as the cheapest labor. Right. It's out there, mm-hmm. you know. And the thing is, is that 
these companies pretty much already exist, except in other countries, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And we say other countries, but we mean they exist in this country, but mm-hmm. they're geographically set in, in other countries. Mm-hmm. Wherever they're doing it, U.S. companies are some of the corporations that are buying that labor. Right, absolutely. Well, yeah, when I saw it, and I think a lot of other people commented on this too, the pitch of the company taking care of all your physical needs, right? So that you can stay there more and just you are the labor for the company. That's what a lot of people see in some of these big tech companies that offer you everything, right? Places like Google, you 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 mm-hmm. know, you can eat there. You can have your kids getting babysat there. And obviously that's a, that's a first world. That's a very high end mm-hmm. problem yeah. to have. But I'm just wondering if uh, you see any parallels sort of between the you know, the kinds of environments that you're seeing, kinds of industries in the Bay Area uh, that it changed kind of the, the place where you live. And Well, and it's, it's again, it's a model that's besides regular chattel slavery in the U.S. has been here, but, you know, you had the coal mining towns mm-hmm. that, that did that. So you kind of get, you stop understanding what the value of your labor actually is mm-hmm. because... They have other prices and, you know, there's the company store Store, and all of that sort of thing. Not that that would necessarily have to be a bad thing, but you have no control Mm -hmm. over anything else in your surroundings. And increasingly less control. Yeah. And so, like, if you're a family, nobody's keeping track of you know, hopefully, like, you did X amount of dishes for this long and you did that, you know, like, you can have a set up where people can work together like that. But if you have a household where one person is getting all <laughs> the mm-hmm. prop, getting the profit and making everyone else do the work, then mm-hmm. that's a whole different thing. Right. Talk a little about getting the movie made because you got money from Megan Allison's company. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, sh- she came on, she bought it at Sundance. Right. Exactly. You, um, prim- you made it very all- quickly. You made it in a year, correct? You started filming. Well, n- we we filmed it in 28 days. Right, exactly. And but it was uh, in but from the time you started to when you got it into Sundance it was pretty quick. Well, I I finished writing it in 2012. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so uh, you, we talk about entrepreneurship a lot yeah, on this podcast yeah. and I think one interesting thing is you really hustled your way into getting this this screen Yeah, it was a uh, stone yeah, soup like I, like I'm sure so many things are. This person's on board. Yeah. They think it's good. Well, mm-hmm. You know, I think. Um, so you finished in 2012. How did you get it to Sundance? So first, David Cross and Patton Oswalt, who play white voices in the movie, uh, they were the first ones to sign on and say, we're down with this. So when I s- started writing it, I thought because of my music, I could get a lot of people to read it that were mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. positions to get yeah. it made. But it worked the opposite because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a musician with a script. Mm-hmm. It, was, it ended up being... Like, who are you? It ended, yeah, it ended up being like the letter in, in Invisible Man because mm-hmm. although people would be like, oh, great, cool. You know, the, the, the quality was suspect. Right, right. And, Isn't uh, this a cute thing? Yeah. Thing. Or, or, you know, like, yeah, of course you want to make a movie. You also want to have a clothing line. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm, want to, mm-hmm. you know, have a chain of stores or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so them signing on made a few people be like, oh, maybe at least it's funny, mm-hmm. right? So a few more people started reading it. 
giving me feedback, but Dave Eggers, I ran into Dave Eggers on Valencia Street, just on the street walking with a friend of mine named uh, J. Otto Siebold, who actually did all the titles on the movie and is known uh, known children's author. Um, and I said, hey, I'm, I have this script. And by this point, I thought, okay, I'm just going to put this out on the internet mm -hmm. and People will That's read that, it yeah. and it'll be known that I did it. And I said, would you read it? Give me some notes because I want it to be as tight as it can before can be before I put it out. He read it and he said what he said publicly later, which was, this is one of the best unproduced screenplays I've ever read. He published David it. David Eggers is a very famous writer. Yeah. And, 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 and teacher. Yeah, he, he's a screenwriter and a, more known as a novelist. Mm -hmm. And he published it as its own paperback book and bound with the McSweeney's Quarterly. And that mm -hmm. went out to 10 or 20,000 people in 2014. Mm -hmm. And that made people take it seriously. Right. And so I joined SF, the SF Film Filmmaker in Residence Program. And they kind of gave me office space. So I was like, okay, like, I, you know, now I can, I'm, I'm around people that are getting their movie mm -hmm. made. And so that was inspiring. And I, met a couple producers, a few producers, uh, Jonathan Duffy, Kelly Williams, who had done some stuff that had gotten into Sundance before, and George Rush, who's uh, out here. And then now I'm a filmmaker in residence, and mm -hmm. now I've got these right. producers on board. So this is a serious thing. There's still some question with the of, investors. As about, all movies, yeah. One, would you, will you actually be able to, if I'm going to put in this little amount, are you going to get enough Mm -hmm. to make the movie. He's never made a film before. Right. What can we do? So all of those things then applied for the Sundance uh, Screenwriting Lab. They accepted it, which is a prestigious thing. And I went to the lab. So that gave it mm -hmm. a little bit more. Then, then actually Sundance, they have a thing called the Catalyst Mm -hmm. uh, Sundance Catalyst Program. They have a weekend where basically everybody goes there, gets drunk, to the um, resort and um, over a three-day period, 12 projects that they've picked, you know, basically pitched to a room full of 60 investors. Mm -hmm. And uh, we met all of our investors except for one there. And because I'm used to performance, then I was able to tell the story in a funny way. So I just got up there and told the story. There and, in Utah. Yeah. 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 And uh, met a lot of folks there. Then it was still people were like, I'm really interested in it. But, you know, there was some trepidation uh, about me not having uh, done a film before, which is understandable. I joined the then I got into the Sundance Filmmakers Lab where you actually shoot some scenes and mm -hmm. all that. And the main investor group, which was Nina Yang Bon Jovi and Forrest Whitaker's company, they saw it. And so I think that that was part of their decision-making right. process. Right. And yeah. And, and, and then it appear, you make it. Yeah. Yeah. So then How we- How much did it cost? What was the amount you raised? It was supposed to be 2.6. Mm -hmm. It ended up being 3.6. Mm -hmm. But you made of it. much more than that. Oh yeah. Right now it's at 17 something million and they think it'll- leave U.S. theaters at 20, and then we'll do international and uh, 
you know, but t- this is typical stuff. the way a lot of movies get made. These in the way it's. Did you did you think of any other way to make it? Like now with Netflix and other people are making. There's lots of different outlets for creators now. Well, yeah, I probably would have taken money from almost everywhere, anywhere. Uh, but I think that um, I, you know, Netflix would probably have been the last choice because I wanted it to be in theaters. In theaters, yeah, that's what um, happened with Crazy Rich Asians too. They were gonna Netflix was had offered more money to make it, and then they decided they wanted a movie. Yeah, yeah, I've just started watching all those things like Netflix and mm-hmm. Amazon. Mm-hmm. And, Hulu just because I'm writing a TV show and I kind of want to see what options you have, what what are out there. But I feel it feels weird to if to have your thing just be one box among all of these. <laughs> all right, we'll talk things. about that. All right, we're gonna take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, but I want to talk more about that because I think a lot of artists have to be making those decisions now. Yeah. We'll be back in a minute with Boots Riley, the writer and director of Sorry to Bother You. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're here with Boots Riley, writer and director of Sorry to Bother You. Um, And we're talking about his film and how films are made. And we just talked a little bit about um, how he got the movie made. It obviously got into Sundance, was a huge hit there, and then got money from Megan Ellison's company, which has done a lot of big films. It was their first acquisition. To distribute it. Yeah. To distribute it. Yeah. What did that do for you in that part? Why was that important? Because it got to the larger theatrical release. Uh, I mean, well, I wanted it to have a theatrical release because it is a film that is about the experience and experiencing it with other people around. Um, there were a couple people bidding on the movie, but uh, Annapurna, which is Megan Ellison's company, I don't, I don't want to say it's just her because there's a lot of great people there. But Megan called me and she was like, I, she felt like this movie was uh, a piece of cinematic history, mm-hmm. which of course any director is going to be like, okay. <laughs> That's her You line. got, I'm listening. Yeah, okay. Right? <laughs> you're so pretty. <laughs> you're so pretty. Calm. Yeah. But that she laid out how she thought they could 
make everyone else understand that as well. Mm-hmm. And that they, they had that, um, that goal that meant that they would take a risk because the movie is beyond the themes in it. It's stylistically, aesthetically, and just plot wise, it's a very different kind of film. Oh yeah. And so it's not just that people haven't seen a film with as radical politics of this. And after 20 something years of being an artist, I've realized that it can't just be about what I'm talking about. Right. No, I got it. It took a you turn. Know, yeah. That and, movie took a turn. And so, I liked it. And so I've always artistically wanted, I, I need people to understand that I, I need to push boundaries and, uh, and that's in my music as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a risky thing. So knowing that it was a risk, some folks that were talking to us about distributing it were talking that part up like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, just the regular old like, well, the market for this is limited. You know, what they mean by that is that it's a mainly black cast. Yes. Meaning they have no idea what popular culture is all about in the first place. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, they just seem like they knew. Because I I would agree. Talk about that when you hear that. Well, I mean, it's been like this for a while, definitely with music. Music, uh, for instance, is um, I think music is about, you know, or art in general has to be about passion. Mm -hmm. And um, so much of music throughout the last hundred years, at least, once folks that have been going through struggle got access to being able to make recordings, those recordings touched the folks that listen to them, no matter where they're from, what their background is. And because that history of struggle, that those things that folks are coming through, um, being represented in music has created creates that passion that you want from something, which is like, um, and, 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 and so I think there is, there's something to, uh, art that comes out of black culture, which is a culture that is created that, that much of it is connected to struggle Mm -hmm. because of capitalism, because of how capitalism works that art is created to struggle, which is also created to a passion. And I think that there's something more than like a, a tourism that's happening. Mm-hmm. There's people wanting to connect to that feeling of trying to be free, of dealing with the world and gaining power over your life mm-hmm. because we all no matter where you're from, we're trying to engage with the world and have some say-so over what's around us. And although folks are at various levels of being able to do that, that's still a need. And so people connect to that. That is related to... Can I interrupt? Use the word tourism. Explain that. Well, there's 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 something that white people are accused of 
when they are consuming black culture, which is kind Visiting. of, a, huh? Visiting. Yeah, which is kind of like, oh, I'm just um, seeing what this is about and this is cool and okay, now I'm going to go get a cappuccino. And while that may be going on, I think it's also missing a, a the piece of it. emotional appeal that it has to everybody. Yeah, it's missing the fact that people are looking for a culture that represents the struggle mm -hmm. that the world is in. Mm -hmm. We were earlier talking about our friend Jill Sobule, and I met her on a tour with Steve Earle. Steve Earle, country radio won't mess with him, mainly because of this one song he did, which was the Ballad of Johnny Walker Lind, which was about a white kid from Marin who joined the Taliban and when the U.S. came to invade Afghanistan, he fought against the U.S. and the U.S. captured him and, um, you know, had him on a gurney and made a big thing about it. In Steve Earle's song, which is from the standpoint of Johnny Walker Lind, He's saying, look, I've been, I'm watching MTV and, you know, then he names off a few other things that are associated with whiteness and the way that it's portrayed in the media and sees that he doesn't see anything that represents, that him. represents him. Because I think that even white people are sold and, and it deals with this in the movie mm -hmm. to a certain extent. You do, absolutely. That yeah. was the people being, using worry-free. That was... In, well, well, not even that. Yeah. I'm talking about when they talk about the white voice. Yes, that's right. Oh, yeah. What, what the idea of whiteness is, mm -hmm. is this idea that even most white people don't have, but it's a reaction to the idea of blackness, mm -hmm. which is... You know, like, so there's all these racist tropes about black folks, which are that, um, and, and they, they, serve, they have a utility. So we live in an economic system that has to have unemployment. It cannot exist with full employment. If you have full employment under capitalism, then anyone can demand whatever wage they want. Wages go up, stocks go down all that kind of stuff. An army of unemployed people is very necessary because you have to be able to threaten jobs. And, you know, some publications like Wall Street Journal and other will openly worry when, the, when they feel that the unemployment rate is going too low. Now, knowing this, we also know that unemployed folks have to eat just like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so they end up engaging in the illegal economy. What much of our culture tells us, including TV and media and even songs, are that poverty is due to the bad choices of the impoverished. Like you just didn't pick the right schools, you weren't paying attention, you're a little too aggressive. This whole discussion of people having the wrong idea of what masculinity is is often tied into this idea that people are making these bad choices and the murder rates and all that kind of stuff. And in reality, it's it's just that, you know, we have these 
people that have business illegal businesses that they have to regulate themselves because all business uses violence to regulate itself, whether it's a tech business, whether it's a supermarket, or whether it's a dope dealing operation. Mm-hmm. Violence is used, and the violence that, that legal businesses use is called the police. The police are going to do something to you if you do something to a legal business. During prohibition, if you rob the liquor dude, gangsters come after you. Now you rob the liquor dude, police come after you. Ten years ago, you robbed the weed dude. Depending which weed dude, maybe some gangsters will come after you. <laughs> and now there's an app where you can order your weed. <laughs> yeah. And now you rob the weed dude, the police will come after right. you. Um, so it's all, it's all the same stuff. The point is, is that the idea, though, that we're all sold by using the other of people of color, otherizing people of color, is that, look— these folks are poor because they're making the bad decisions. You can agree with that. And so if you're a white guy that's making 22000 a year, you're like, well, I'm middle class and um, I don't relate to that. And you relate more to the ruling class than anyone else. And there's this, mm-hmm. this idea of, of whiteness that people try to put on. And that's, that's represented in the movie. That discussion is represented through the discussion of the white voice. The white voice. And... The Army Hammer character. Well, you mean he's white, but that discussion I don't think right. is happening right. with right. him. Right, right, so, um, so w- when you were trying to get these messages in, uh, in the way you did with this I- this idea, I-, I know you're trying to resist that it's a tech company, but it remind- one of the things that was interesting when I was talking to a lot of white male tech people I deal with loved this movie. And I kept saying, it hates you. You understand that this is about you. This is about the, all the things you've been doing and creating displacement in society, creating discord, no. creating races, all kinds of things. And they're like, no, no, it's not. It was fascinating to to listen, you know, in a lot of ways of, of them talking about it. Because I think it is like you grew up here in Oakland, San Francisco, mm-hmm. the changes, the gentrification that you were talking about in your song yeah. decades ago are happening because of these same people. Well, yeah, and I don't think it's a personality thing, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never, I, and my whole point with all of my stuff is it has to do with how we organize the way we survive, which is called the economy. Right. Which is called the economic system that we're in. And so I don't think that just, you know, I, I don't, just like I don't think poverty is because of bad choices. I mean, you can, yeah, you could choose to be the crab that shoves all the other crabs down while mm-hmm. you get out of the barrel. But I don't think other than those kind of choices, I don't think it's because of that. And I think that this system creates this stuff. This is actually what's happening with the tech companies is not new. When you talk no, about the mining companies that we were talking about before, that was considered a new model. Like technology. This is uh, not only technology, but hey, we're helping out the family. Mm-hmm. Right? You can come live in our town. You don't have to go out. And this is new. This is, this is, we're doing something new with industry. And it's always that capital tries to say, look, we're not doing all these we're terrible not things that we did in the last 50 hundred years. This time is different. Yeah. So what tech companies are doing has some differences, but it's just they're parallel differences. Mm-hmm. 
And when we see like those big uh, railroad barons with the, you know, with the big top hat and the mu- handlebar mustache, we think of them as looking evil. But that was the style. Mm-hmm. They were in fashion. They were the opposite of what people thought that mm-hmm. aristocrats looked like. Right. Right. So, you know, it's we're not doing anything new. We keep trying to do something new without changing the, the fundamental thing, which is that capitalism is based on the exploitation of labor. No matter what algorithms you make, if you're not changing that, all the algorithms are going to all the technology. And this is where it does have to do with the spoiler that we're mm-hmm. so technology just makes exploitation more efficient. That's right. A hundred percent. You know, and except that they pretend they don't realize it. It's astonishing yeah. when I press them on it about their response. Now, it yeah. just there was just a hearing where they finally admitted that maybe they did some damage, hmm. you know, but it took and I don't even think they meant it. I don't think they even think that. Well, I think we're all taught to not look that way. I mean, in California, at least, it's illegal for high school teachers to say anything that puts um, socialism or communism into a non-negative light. Mm -hmm. Not saying everybody follows that, but that's the the law, and you can get fired for Mm -hmm. that. And so definitely... Teachers did stick to that rule when I was a kid. And I think we're what we're seeing, why people believe they're doing something great is because we're, we're told that, you know, you don't have to look at that contradiction. Mm-hmm. You just, all of these things that are happening that are, that, that we see as negatives in our society are just about tweaking some problems mm-hmm. and that the basis of of our system is is good. So I think once those I'd really be interested in what kind of technology people create if we have a system in which the people democratically control the wealth that they create with their labor. After a while there being technology that is created to make people's lives better without, um, you know, I don't, I don't know well, I what think, that would be. But well, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I don't know if you've been following, but there, there has been a movement in tech we've seen where people are trying to unionize the contract bus drivers. Certain engineers are upset about how their AI is being used, trying to make sure they have more control over the way their tools uh, are used out in the world. What do you make of all that? I mean, do you think that part of the popularity of your film, why tech, you know, people at Kara talks to are still like it is because even within these giant tech companies or startups, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's increasing kind of political movement going on. Or they have a vague knowledge of what's actually happening. Yeah, I, I think that, first of all, we all think that we're the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. We all feel that so many people would, for instance, politically agree with me that even folks that are in positions of power, but they feel like there's nothing they can do about the way the world is. So they're just like, they don't think a movement is going to win. They're like, this is the world. Much like there's a thing that uh, 
Mr. Which is just uh, some people say Mr. Blank, but he's just Mr. With seven underscores. Um, Omari Hardwick's character says um, to Cassius, which is don't worry about what should be, just work with what is. Mm -hmm. And that's how most of us feel. Um, uh, There's this story, uh, Tom Morello, who I had Street Sweeper Social Club with, but he's from Rage Against the Machine. They were doing this music video that was directed by Michael Moore. And the idea was that they were going to show up on Wall Street. And for people who might not know, Rage Against the Machine has very incendiary lyrics about, like, tearing things up and radical ideas in it and revolutionary things. And so they were going to show up on Wall Street and just play really loud the police were going to come take them away. People were going to boo them and throw things at them. And that was going to be the video. They went there. They they played. First time, not much reaction. Second time, uh, you know, they see some police radioing and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Third time, a couple of the doors, like the security doors, close. Fourth time, they start hearing these, these chanting coming. And it was going, ha! Ah. They're like, is this like the SWAT team, like Mm -hmm. military? Because we're on Wall Street and we're saying these things. And um, it gets louder and louder. And then from around the corner are hundreds of people in suits that have come from their jobs and are chanting, Suits for rage! Suits for rage! Oh, they just wanted to get arrested. Well, they came yeah. and because they agreed mm-hmm. with what Rage Against the Machine were saying. And so many people do see that we should have a different economic system, but they don't think they can do anything right. about That's it or they don't think that there will be anything done about it. So there, I could see that there are, if there are people on Wall Street yeah. That feel that way. There are definitely a lot of people in tech that wish we had a different world and just don't see how they could do it. And possibly that is the impetus for people, to you know, change. unionizing and doing these things and trying to figure out how they can have a say in it, um, you know, and, and for them to do that will take some work because the real way that unions are able to be effective is to be able to strike and keep scabs out. Well, we're going to talk about that when we get, what would you going to do doing forward? We're here with Boots Riley. He's the writer and director of Sorry to Bother You. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking from the provocative to the technical we're offering insights you won't want to miss so tune in to the future of work a prop pod special sponsored by canva you can find it on the prop pod wherever you get your podcasts We're here with Boots Riley, and we were talking about his movie, Sorry to Bother You, but a lot of other things. So how do you feel like the reception of your the movie, It's you're like the most popular thing now. Hmm. How does that, do you like that? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take Are it. Are you surprised? 
Um, Give me no, I wasn't. I wasn't surprised at the reactions. I, but the volume of them, mm-hmm. I was like the, the, you know, um, the prestigious writers that came out and said things. There are also some folks that hate it, mm-hmm. that just absolutely don't understand. And I don't think it's only from a. Poli- of course, I I expected folks that were really right wing to say, but I don't even think it's just that. I think it's, there's just something about it. Like there's some safety that I'm shaking up Mm -hmm. Uh, because when you're, when you create stuff, whether it's a song or a film or it, it's really, it feels good to have these rules that you can check off that you did like, Oh yeah. By around page 10, it did this Mm -hmm. thing. Right. And then does this other thing by page 30. Mm -hmm. And so I know that people are going to feel this certain way when I do it. And so if you're used to watching something in that way and it doesn't do those things. Right. For some people, it feels bad. Right. You know. But I'm talking about the concepts in the middle of this era we're in right now. Yeah. No, I wasn't surprised because I think that for so long we have been lied to about what the rest of the population in the U.S. thinks. Mm -hmm. And I've had some, my own, some of my own experiences that have led me to be believing this. So I joined a radical organization called Progressive Labor Party um, when I was a teenager. And at some point, um, uh, me and some friends led a walkout at Oakland High, 2,000 students out of 2,200 students walked out. And, it, you know, for us, there hadn't been anything like, even though like right now you think about the, if especially if you're younger, you think about the 80s as being close to the 60s. But mm-hmm. for us, it was nowhere near that, especially when you're young and three years ago is ancient history. Mm-hmm. So this is in the late 80s and we had never seen anything like that. And so we were kind of drunk off. We, we won our issue as soon as we walked down so like they were really scared of it as soon as we marched down to the school board they gave in what did you want it was okay this was what made it easy to get folks to walk out it was against year-round schools but uh so yeah yeah but the the thing was at the time skyline high school was still pretty much quote unquote the white school mm-hmm. they were the only ones that weren't going to have to do it and the reason is is because this year-round schools was being done to save money. Folks get to the way it's staggered and um, folks get to uh, use the same books as each other. And then at the same time, in order to do that, you have to be tracked. So in ninth grade, they decide whether you're going to college or not. Mm-hmm. And so... There was a more political reason to do it, but I'm sure many students just heard year-round schools. Oh, hell no. <laughs> no like, I'm down. When do we walk out? Yeah. Right? And uh, so we did that. The next day, the principal, who was a, uh ex-cop named uh, Mr. O'Leary, and was like a real buff dude, really scared people, got on the PA and said... Raymond Riley is a communist and he wants to take us back to the days of the Black Panther Party, blah, 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 this and that. 
And basically, most of the kids' reaction was, uh, what's, I don't know what a communist is, but the government doesn't like it, so right. it's cool. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like... So it didn't work for a while. Yeah. And then organizing outside of that, the reaction in communities of color as I would organize was varied from being interested to I got to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. Sounds good, but I got to pay the bills. Right. Not like, what the hell? You mm -hmm. know. So then, and I don't want to, because I spent so many years talking about the incident. We had this album cover that uh, before 9-11 had the yeah. World Trade Center blowing up. Right after 9-11, within a few months after that, we um, started opening up on this MTV-sponsored tour with this group that worked with Linkin Park. And so it was an all-MTV thing, mm -hmm. not our fans at all. My band didn't want to go because they knew I would be speaking out against the mm -hmm. bombing of Afghanistan. And... Um, so not even speaking out against Iraq. So this was still unpopular to speak out against mm -hmm. because the news was telling us with flags flying on all the broadcasts and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. The news was telling us that most of the U.S. population was for bombing Af Afghanistan. And I even saw it here in the Bay Area, which was even more thought of as being progressive and radical than it is today. And I would, you know, I, I saw a couple times or this same thing almost happened where there'd be a group of people like at a party or something, like 10 people. And one person is saying something crazy. Like one time someone was saying, we need to nuke Afghanistan, just get right. it over with, blah, blah, blah. And everybody's standing around, not saying anything, but just nodding. Right. I'm like, oh, my God, everybody. Right. And then right. I start saying something against that. Right. And then everybody Agreed says, I actually agree. And right. they, they so all thought the that everyone else agreed with that. So we went on this MTV tour and I had band members that I had to replace because they were scared that he would say. that I, which they, I, they knew I was going to mm -hmm. say something and they were scared that we would get beat up or shot or whatever. And we were going to places like Montana, Texas, Oklahoma, Utah. Florida, you know, and as well as other places throughout the Midwest and East Coast. Every place that I said something against the, you know, and I, I would stop the music, full houses. I'd stop the music and speak out against the bombing of Afghanistan. And it got overwhelming applause in all of these places that were supposed to be for the war. And it, it really uh, showed me that the role of media is to make you think you're the most radical person in mm -hmm. the room. Mm -hmm. What about now, though? Because now you have all these ways to communicate. You've got, you know, yeah, Twitter, but, this. But it still is easily controlled with the, the way algorithms work. Mm -hmm. Is It can make you think that something is the sub. Like, so what do some we people not think everybody's still talking about the Kardashians, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because of what, you know... However, it, the mysterious ways it works. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if we know that, here's, here's the part where I maybe start sounding like I've got a tinfoil hat, is that if we know that many of these companies have no qualms about 
um, working with the FBI, the CIA, or whatever mm-hmm. governmental agency comes in. And we also know they have no qualms about however they can monetize yeah, their ability with, with some other companies. Why do we not think that they're that they would fix the algorithm so that we think that something is a subject to talk about or so that we see only the folks that we follow that have this opinion about that or not. That would be, with with them being libertarian and having that ability, it would actually be really dumb of them to not do that, mm-hmm. right? They, that would be going against their business model. Mm-hmm. They would actually have to say, it's not about money with mm-hmm. us. I mean, I know some of them try to say that, but... You and know. they always end up with the money. Yeah. And and so you can go on Twitter and think everybody... Like, I could go on Twitter and think everybody loves Sorry to Bother You. Mm-hmm. And although it's doing well, there's millions, tens, hundreds of millions of people that have no idea that it exists. Right, right. That's a fair point. But what about, like, look, it just, what just happened. You were going to appear at the New Yorker Festival, uh, and then they announced Steve Bannon mm-hmm. uh, going to be there. You pulled out, as did many other people, correct? You, they did not tell you he was appearing when you no. agreed, right? Then they shifted their decision really quickly, in part because of pressure from employees at the Times, people that were at the festival, but also the, the backlash to it. That's not effective, or that's not what reality is? I don't understand. What, what I mean is saying. that there are some uses of these platforms to yeah, yeah. express what people think, actually think. Yeah. But you're talking about but, that. But it's a- I think I, just being someone that has spent the last long, too long of a time marketing through social media, I understand that it's also just not as effective as just you're absolutely right. Regular like billboards and. TV ads and things like that. I think that many of these platforms are lying about how many people see their ads. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that. Yeah. Yeah. We know that they're lying. And we know that. And and I think that that is going to be actually, I I think that's going to be a a crash is going to happen when all of a sudden folks that have been pouring in money to Facebook and any of these other apps that make them think that their ads are getting seen. Mm-hmm. When somebody figures that out and a group of businesses pull out and then everybody does in a domino effect, mm-hmm. it's going to be a crash because, you know, we're, we're relying on many of these folks that run these companies to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And that, that the only thing between them and making more money is them lying? Mm-hmm. They're going to lie. Why not? What about the use, though, though, that people are using it? It's very clear that young people use these, all these things. It, yeah. The mobile But they don't look at the ads. Right. They don't look at that. It dep- I think some are, are just technically speaking, some are, some do get looked at. Like mm-hmm. if you're trying to watch your favorite music video. That's right. And it won't let you skip and it's making you watch this. Sometimes they're watching, but often even then, mm-hmm. you're tuning it out even more than... Like TV is set up, it's the only thing going on. A commercial comes on in the room, and you're sitting there watching it, mm-hmm. right? And and this is just me talking on f- with with like a, a advertiser slash promoter hat on. Mm-hmm. 
people are tuning out as soon as they can. They're tuning out mm -hmm. the ads on there because it's so built built in to what. And, and so I think that's why some companies are like trying to get people to be like, you know, oh, this movie was so fucked up. I'm so glad I had my Sprite in my hand at the time. You know, whatever, <laughs> you know. Oh, whatever. You know, like that's the that's the kind of thing that they're mm -hmm. they're moving toward. But I don't even think the data is there. I don't think they even understand how people are ignoring it. Now, there are some, you know, I have a six year old and you know, those unboxing videos and yeah. all that kind Watches of shit. Them? Oh yeah. It's yeah. Terrible. Yeah. I have a thirteen and a sixteen. <laughs> and so yeah, there are things like they're that. ensconced in it in a way that I, you've never I, they, yeah. that I was in television, I guess. Yeah, and 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 that is where the content is advertised. Mm -hmm. But I know? do think we're consumers of it versus uh, contributors to it more. And if we yeah. don't start to be contributors to it, we're captive of it. Just the way things, the thing in your movie, everyone was captive of that mm -hmm. company versus being controlling of their own destiny, does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. I, I saw a speech that Van Jones gave here a million years ago at um, the Church Glide Memorial. And it was a bunch of uh, African-American teens from Oakland. Um, and he, he looked down at them and he said, how many of you use the internet, you know, use apps and things like that? And you know, they were like, who is this stupid old guy? Of course we use them, they all put up their hand. How many of you, uh, how many of you download things from the internet? And they sort of were making fun of him for saying that. Um, and he said, and they all were like, of course we do, everybody does. And then he said, how many of you upload things to the internet? Which means contribute or be part of the, the wealth creation or any, any part of it, how many of you upload things? And very few of them did, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. He said, you're all digital sharecroppers and, and other people are becoming billionaires because of you. And it was it was such a, like a jarring thing to hear and to mm. hear from someone. Well, I would I would I, I wasn't there, so I don't yeah. hear that. But I would say this that so much of what we do when we are uploading photos mm -hmm. and uploading yeah. videos is actually that also too. Being, yes, that that's what <laughs> you he's know. saying. Yeah, you're you're the, the whole thing is created for. You're, you, you're exploited and they make money. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. I mean, our whole, everything about our lives is commodified. Mm -hmm. So our, you know, social interactions, all of those things are, mm -hmm. is a commodity. Like everything is efficient now. Like it's, we are just more, more efficient beings because even when we're, telling someone where we are by text that is now able to be sold as as so so we're always producing mm -hmm. so what's the next project you're talking about tv show yeah i have a a deal with uh this company uh called media res which is ran by a guy named michael ellenberg who um he's one of the people that brought game of thrones to hbo and so, yeah, I'm, I'm writing, writing the pilot right now. And then I also have a deal, and I can't say who that's with yet, um, for my next feature. So working about? on that stuff. Things. Can't say. Yeah, it's about <laughs> What's stuff. What's the TV show about? I can't say that Oh, yet my goodness. Either. Do you like TV or movies better? TV's where so much is well, happening. Or people shift between I, TV and movies. Yeah, I think I can make 
something that I love, but I'm not as satisfied with how people consume TV because mm-hmm. it's more, uh, I don't know. Well, that's internet-based now, very yeah, much so. That, and that's what I mean. Yeah, the, yeah. E- either way, even TV on regular TV or internet, I think people think of it as more disposable. Like it feels more disposable to mm-hmm. people. Like um, people might love Game of Thrones or whatever, but are they going to be Snacks. like, yeah, are they going to be like, and their friend hasn't seen it. Oh, you're watching episode uh, episode three in season two? I'm, I'm going to sit and watch that with you. <laughs> no, you don't want it. But, there, but yeah. film. They could see it twice. Yeah, something. you'll go. Oh, you haven't seen that. I want to watch that with you. And there's I, And I'm trying to figure out what. And, and they're both valuable because one is art that's like a Polaroid here and mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And the other is something that's a piece that will be there. Mm-hmm. And I don't think one is more, one style is more valuable. I'm, I've always been a person that wants to make something that you can return to, you yeah. know, yeah. And music? Well, we did the, the, the coup, which is my group, mm-hmm. I guess I haven't said that. We did the soundtrack to the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Toon Yards did the score. So my, the, the coup's music is all the, stuff that the characters can hear. Toon Yard's music is all the stuff that we can hear, but the characters can't. And yeah, so we did that. It's the album, the soundtrack album is out on Interscope right now. And, um, you know, I'm sure we're going to perform it and stuff like that. I, I guess I can say that one thing I'm happy about in the shift in my life is not having to uh, sit in a van for 10 hours a day, getting <laughs> from gig to gig, you know. So I, I'll probably, we'll, we'll probably tour less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, last question. When you're looking sort of at the, the political climate and everything else, the success of this movie and the success of a lot of things right now are sort of counter to, pre- to prevailing political, win- or it feels like the political environment. Do you see... A Can you say shift- that question again? Well, do you see things shifting? In this current political environment, the stuff that's succeeding is opposite to that, yeah. it seems like. Well, I Which think- means people, like, like you were talking about people sitting around, or those suits, rage suits for rage, or the people sitting around at a party saying, wait, I actually do agree with you. Do you think that that's not being spoken of now? No, I think that people are feeling bolder in what they will say, what they will talk about with people. I think that um, I think that folks are um, looking at problems more critically and thinking that something needs to be done. I, th- I think that there are two things, though, that one, there has to be a movement that is able to, that people are able to be involved with at their place of work because that's where we spend most of our day. And there has to be or an organizing around using where people's power is, using that point of power that folks have, which is their labor. So that means um, there needs to be a movement that will utilize the withholding of labor, not only to change wage labor values, but to also um, affect political change. There's a danger of putting all of these problems on the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I've seen it happen before. Because you think this is unusual. Huh? You think this is unusual, but it's not, is your point. Yeah, well, it is unusual in the sense that things are going to get more extreme. But the, the stairway to hell that Trump is building is only an extension of the stairway that's been being built this whole time. And if and and what I saw happening with the the uh, anti-war movement was it became all about get Trump out. I mean, get Bush out, mm -hmm. get Bush out. And then Obama came in and was able to do a lot of the same things mm -hmm. uh, with way less people speaking out about it. I mean, so I think it's the job of folks that know better to not just swat down that energy that is people want to use to work against Trump, but to to show where the actual problem is and get gather that it's an opportunity to gather that energy into something that's more effective than just getting Trump out. Because right now you get Trump out and what's going to happen? I mean, first of all, the Democratic Party is having no qualms with moving to the right of where it was. Mm -hmm. You know, all it has to be is a few inches to the left of Trump and people will be like, you know, and 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 even the arguments against Trump uh, come going around this really nationalist line. Like, mm -hmm. we only want U.S. billionaires controlling our political process, not Russian billionaires. <laughs> What's going on with that? You know? <laughs> You're right. They only have to be just to the left of Trump. You know, and... Yeah. And, and and it's like where, the hugging of Republicans lately. Oh, they're good. I was like, they weren't good before yeah. when they were against gay rights or whatever they were against. Yeah. And folks that are like cheering on the CIA and the FBI and um, as if they don't have kill lists and aren't assassinating folks that that are like assassinating union leaders, you know, in, in the past 30 years, they've, they've done that just because it was something that was uh, building popular support and going to not be good for U.S. business interests. These are organizations that folks that consider themselves even progressive, some folks are, you know, being like, you know, where, I mean, well, it's the weird wearing shirts for, you know, about, you know, supporting um, the FBI and yeah. all this kind James of stuff. James Comey, I'm and, like, no. <laughs> and, it's, and, and, and the thing is, is some people feel like it's a tactical move. Look, we got to do whatever we got to do to get out Trump. But then you're left with a world that's yeah. where nobody is going to be talking about these problems right. afterward. Right. So we have to have a movement that, one, aims to change the whole economic system, but immediately uses organizes around these problems using the withholding of labor and engaging in class struggle. Great. On that note, that's you're 100% right. I hadn't even thought about that. Boots, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank and sorry you. to bother you. We'll be on digital platforms on October 9th and on DVD and Blu-ray. Blu-ray, is that still around? On October 23rd. Thank you, Shireen Ghaffari, for joining me for the interview and lobbying to have Boots on the show. Thank um, you. If you enjoyed the interview, and you should see, it's in theaters still. Sorry to bother you. It's still in theaters. Sorry to bother you. It's still in theaters. Still in Go theaters. see it while it's still there because... You know, even though it's coming out on DVD and Blu-ray, it really is a community yeah, experience. Absolutely. It's something you got to 
see with other folks. Thank you. And if you enjoyed the interview as much as I do, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find more episodes of Rico Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you didn't like the interview, you're an idiot. Or if you just want to say hi, tweet at me. I'm at Kara Swisher on Twitter. This was a great interview. Now that you're done with this, go and check out the latest episode of Recode Media. You can find that show wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.